Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Guy, uh, Jesus died this week. Yes, no, I heard, that's right. Um, um, give it three days. No, sorry, joking aside. <laughs> no, no, no. Roll those who don't know, Gary is talking about the legendary character who was at, I mean, how he had managed to do it, he was at every gig you ever, ever went to. Yeah, you went yeah. to the Greyhound in Fulham Road, he was there. You went to the Hope and Anchor, he was there. You went to Reading Festival, he was there. Apparently, he got up and played. Is it, he used to wear, he used to have long blonde hair and he used to wear white. He was, he was, a, he was a classic hippie, uh, white kind of caftani type things. And people used to shout, Jesus, from the bleachers and he would wave back at you. Played a tambourine. He apparently got on stage with Pink Floyd at the Roundhouse and played flute on Atom Heart Mother. What? Yeah, I, I I read this in an article recently, uh, but but he would then but then you know I'd see him at man gigs and you know Genesis or whatever you know you were going to, and then later on I'd see him at punk gigs. He'd no, I, I'm saying I remember seeing him at the dance. Right, I think I saw him at uh, all things. I remember seeing Simon Townsend playing, and we had this great band. He had Tony Butler and Mark Brzezinski, um, who might come up later uh, in his band, and I remember seeing him at the at the, at the Greyhound in Fulham Road, and Jesus was there. Anyway, his name was William Jellett and R.I.P. and God rest his soul. I mean, I feel Absolutely. like a little bit of music history has, has, has gone from the audience. Uh, wonder if he ever danced at a Level 42 show. I bet he did. I bet he did. Another bass player comes into the show. Uh, yeah. A little bit threatened, guy. Yeah, I can see that on your face. I'm very threatened. threatened. I'm nervous. I'm on edge. Um, I'm pretty, very, ins- <laughs> right. very insecure. Very, very insecure. <laughs> All right, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. 
Hey guys, it's very nice to see you both. And um, uh, you know that over the years I've known you. I was just thinking about Gar uh, Gary. Do you remember coming to Miraval Studios in the south of France? It would have been about 1989. You were looking for somewhere to record, and uh, we happened to be in there at that time, um, 1989. Like I said, and, no, it was uh, earlier than that. It was earlier than that because it was. Oh, it was. We, but 1988. You're right. It was 88. 80. I think it was 86 because it was when we were mixing through the Barricades album. It, um, it was. It was definitely 88, mate. Oh, uh, was it? Was it? Oh, yeah. Christ, what do I know? You're not going to fall out over this, are you? Yeah, that's it. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's it's a long time ago, mate. And um, but so, you know, so we went to Miravel, and I don't remember coming in to see you. I was with must have been with Tony Swain or something. Uh, some oh, you know, Gary Langan, Gary Langan, of course. And we were going to be doing uh, one of those the last two albums. And and you were in there. And did we hang out? Yeah. Well, you came over. You you, you had dinner with us. Um, we we were sort of heads down working. So I was coming in and out as we were doing bits, because I, I was quite desperate to get get the album finished, um, which we got what done. Album in, was it? It, it was, was it? Staring at the Sun album. And oh, right. uh, Boone was down. Boone was down there uh, writing with us. And we, we'd also been running through some other guitarists. And I'm not sure if Al Murphy. Um, was there at that point in time, Gary? But that right. was when that was the first time we worked with Al Murphy was uh, in that studio, and um, it was it was a lovely old place. I don't know if you if well, you you do remember it, but I don't know if you've ever worked there, Guy. It's um it's an old. Uh, I, yeah, I think I have. It's that, that's that's the Chateau place, right? Yeah, I, yes, I, I just yes. talked about it. My last lockdown next because funnily enough, I I recorded there with Gary Moore with Gary Husband. Did you really? Well, Gary yeah. was there. It was, it's, a, it's a tale of Gary's because Gary Husband was in the band <laughs> with us then, and uh, we we um, it was it's it's an old vineyard and it was actually uh, nice. it was turned into a studio by Jacques Lucier. Um, right. I, I don't know if, if any of you do you remember him? He was, he was yeah. he, he was the the sort of French jazz pianist who looked very like yeah. Abraham Lincoln. He had this sort of this this yeah. this nice beard, um, and he used to. Uh, well, you say it's nice. I'm not sure. I never came close <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah, nobody wears beards anymore. Well, except for you, guy, of course. But oh, um, anyway, when, when we left there, the studio manager very kindly gave us a a, a case of the the wine that they produced there. Oh, and, it was amazing, uh, wasn't it? It was amazing. It, just a beautiful place. The wine was vile, but the the studio. No, was no, lovely. the wine. The, no, it was the rosé, right? Which was great there. But then, of course, you everyone made the mistake of getting a few cases to take home, and and rosé just doesn't travel. It didn't last at home either. And this was sort of before I was really into my wine, and we kept it on the top shelf in the kitchen, which was red hot. So by the time we finally got round to opening a bottle, <laughs> which was about four years later, it was it, it just came out like syrup. Can I just say about the wine? Because I've got first-hand experience of this particular bottle vintage. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we used to drink it. Well, hand over it to our sommelier. <laughs> they used to give us wonderful lunches out on the uh, out yeah. on the veranda. That's right. And there was cats walking on the table when everyone was eating, and and uh, and and we always used to drink the wine there. I know. I think Tony Hadley only went to the studio because of the wine, but that studio then got bought by um, Brad, Brad Pitt and Pitt. Angelina. Who, right, then, yeah. who then changed the name of the wine to Pink Floyd because it was That's where right. Floyd had done some of the wall recordings. 
How about that? Hey, you yeah. see? It isn't it amazing? But it was a beautiful place, and, and I got such strong memories of um, one finding uh, a scorpion in my shoe in the morning because there, there was all kinds of wildlife littering <laughs> around, and uh, hearing the frogs croaking in the evening as the sun was going down. It was a beautiful place, a nice place to work. Anyway, wow, we digress. So you're in the Isle of Wight. Yeah, yeah, on the Isle of Wight in lockdown. That's... That studio looks like it takes up most of the Isle of Wight, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just this cheap camera makes it look like that, you know? It's, uh, it, to, it's an estate agent's camera that makes every room look sort of... <laughs> yeah, estate agents and pornographers. It makes everything look massive, so, uh, you know, it's cool. Look, look at a machine head on that. <laughs> I... Um, uh, I used to love Alan Sands when we were kids because we'd get those wonderful... Uh, oh, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. The variable coloured sands. Yeah, I did a school trip from my, from my London primary and, and uh, we went and stayed in this little B&B. And I remember we, we got taken around the Britain Norman factory yeah, where they yeah. made the Islander and the Trilander. And That's yeah, right. we went to Island Bay. Yeah, well, they, they used to make... The, they used to, the, the kids would go away with these little test tubes full of the coloured sands. That's and right, you, used yeah. to, you used to be able to buy the, the empty test tube and then sort of walk around and fill it up with these because yeah. there are so many sort of stratas of sand going up the cliffs there. And it, the thing is that they started running out, so they actually shit the sand in these days. And there's, some, <laughs> there's somebody sitting there with, like, food colouring, like, chucking it in the sand, just, just to, to kind of make the whole thing work. There, but, should, um, there should be a sort of amnesty of sand, should there, of Alan Sands. Everyone's yeah, there should. In their Alan Sands. They can put it all back in again. Yes, exactly. Can we have it all back now, please? Yeah. Yeah, but separating the colours out from your tube, that would be a... So, so the, only, the only other sort of famous people I can think of from the Isle of Wight was Ju Julia Margaret Cameron, the 19th yeah. century uh, photographer. Yeah, photographer. Yeah. And, and Tennyson used to live there as well, didn't he? Uh, he did, yeah. Thing. Alfred Lord Tennyson lived here. Um, Charles Dickens had a gaff too. They, they all sort of lived along that the, the, the southwest coast of the Isle of Wight, um, which is beautiful and very windswept. And uh, D Dickens... Uh, there's one place in Bonchurch uh, that he, he's reputed to have written uh, what one of his famous novels in. Uh, who wrote Black Beauty as well? Because that was also written in Bonchurch. So uh, around this sort of this Gothic period, this early 1840s period, um, the Isle of Wight was quite the place to be. And well, um, funnily enough, uh, uh, Mark, according to Bruce Robinson, uh, on his, in his absolutely and, and very that, very Mark? convincing. Who wrote Midnight Light? His very, very convincing book. They all loved Jack. On who uh, he, uh, he reckons he found the real Jack the Ripper, who was actually the most popular songwriter of the age. Who, after all his ripping, went and retired to the uh, Isle of Wight. Now that's an interesting thing, guy. Another interesting thing because we, um, I, I had a bar in Ride, and when I was sort of fitting the bar up with. Uh, you know, paintings and junk on the walls because I just wanted to look busy. Uh, we went to a, a local auctions and we bought this this portrait of this this couple, and he was sort of reputed to have been the mayor of Ride. But there was a lot of talk too that he was he he was Jack the Ripper, and it was just this old thing from you know oh, that that they, yeah because he wrote he wrote his most popular song was called They All Love Jack. And was it really? You sure? you're, you're not getting this muddled up with Spinal Tap, are you? You know, <laughs> he's a saucy one. <laughs> uh, so, listen, but the, so the real the question that lead, this is leading up to is other than Level 42, who, what other band has ever come out of the Isle of Wight? 
the uh, the bees was a really good band from the I 90s. said whatever other band has ever come out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the bees. Yeah, the bee the bees were uh, uh, they uh, didn't uh, exist, Gary. <laughs> Uh, the, the Bees are a fantastic band. It's worth checking out. You know, um, Sunshine Hit Me is a great album. It's worth really worth checking out. Uh, and uh, uh, who else? Craig Douglas, the singing milkman. He he was um, he was sort of hitting the charts in the early sixties. Wow. Yeah, he, he was. Sing- um, yeah. Uh, was he an inspiration of yours, Mark? Because you were in fact a milkman, weren't you? <laughs> I was a milkman. Yes. There's there's definitely something themic about did, this. Did, did, did his yes. records go gold top? that's very good gary yeah i like that sorry our writers Uh, aren't in this week (laughs) (laughs) you know um who else lives here uh benedict cumberbatch uh is is got a gaff here um uh steve lamax missus comes from the isle of wight as well uh no there's 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 a lot of people here but and i think a lot of it is because the island has uh i mean a very good friend of mine michelin starred chef chris galvin's got a place in um uh, in cows and, and a lot of people do have holiday homes here so between seaview benbridge cows and yarmouth i mean rob the bank uh, rob and josie they live right. over here john giddings lives down here of uh, course there, there's, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people in the industry that, that do seem to like like living here on the Isle of Wight. It's a nice place, who, you know. Who in Level 42 was in, came from the Isle of Wight? Because you didn't actually oh. form the band until you came to London and worked at Macari's, right? In the end. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There, there were um, the, the brothers Gould, the Gould um, Phil yeah. and Boone, who, right. uh, but, you know, we became the, the very best of mates because as always with, with bands... You, you know, you you meet up because you 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 have similar taste in music, and we absolutely adored uh, the, the jazz fusion and and uh, all the bits from the sort of the nineteen seventies and jazz funk and uh, jazz fusion. So we used to get together and talk about uh, you know drummers. Really, I, I wanted to be a drummer oh, no. very much at that, that time. Talking of which, I've got to interject here because I want to hear, you've got to tell this story, Mark, which I love, is because you, like me, like so many of us, uh, are a, were a Laker kid, right? And you flew to America on when the cheap Freddie yeah. Laker flights, right? As I didn't know. And why did you fly to America, Mark? I, I flew to America because I, I wanted to join Return to Forever, which was Chick Corea, Stan Clark, Lenny White and uh, Aldo Miola at that particular point in time. And I, I wrote to Lenny when I was uh, 15 or 15 years old, I think, 16 maybe. And uh, a year later, I got a letter back. And uh, it's a fantastic oh, was terrible picture. then, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I, still, I still have, yeah, that's right. You think, you think the post's slow now, you want to go back to 74, <laughs> 76. But um, Lenny was lovely and, and he wrote... Um, he just gave me, you know, it, was, it was just like a single thing, but I've got it hanging on the wall in the house because it was such a lovely letter and was one of those sort of uh, sort of seminal moments for me because this great musician that I thoroughly admired and aspired to be like him yeah. took the time to write back, you know, and he just gave me this bit of advice. The last bit, it just said, remember, Mark, a man makes his own chances. Now, when you're sort of 15 years old, you, you sit there reading and, you know, grilling through everything. And I thought, what does he mean? And he, he'd written his, his name and address at the top of the letter, as everybody does anyway. But I, I took this to, to mean that he wanted me to go to New York. So, this, as you said, Guy, this was just when Freddie Laker had launched the, you know, cheap flights to the state. 
And uh, this was... You took your own lunch. You took your own lunch, right? Remember? Yeah, 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 that's... It was, it Fred, was real Lake, budget stuff. It was, a, it was a, sort of a cross between sort of Richard Branson and Reg Varney, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It was a bit. Yeah, they, they used to have, they had conductors walking up and down the aisle that you could you could actually, you know, do you want to return? Do you want to get off here? It was um, but it was good and it got me it got me to the states. And uh, unfortunately, but, but when I got to New York, I, I hadn't sort of made much planning, and uh, showed up at Lenny White's house and and his wife, who was charming, answered the door, and she said, you know, and I said, oh, I'm from I'm come from the Isle of Wight. I wrote Lenny a, a letter and she said, oh, yeah, the guy from the Isle of Wight. How lovely, you know. And uh, I said, is Lenny in? And she said, no, he's in California. And, and it's like, you know, uh, 3,000 miles away. And I think the look on my face, I think my lip was going and, and uh, she, she, she was lovely. She said, look, Mark, you know, if you leave me a number, she said, he's back, you know, he's back in six days time and he will give you a call. And man, he did. And he invited me over to his place, and and uh, so I got to meet him, and uh, Don Blackman, who who was uh, sort of produced the album with him, and was a fantastic keyboard player, invited me in, played me the album that they'd just been mixing in California. Um, it took me to his basement where, and, and like I saw his drums. How old, so how old were you? How exactly? How old were you then? I, I would have been. I just turned seventeen. So oh, amazing, uh, I mean, you just amazing. die. You just yeah, die. It, it's incredible. So I mean, you you as you as musicians, you would know how important that is. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to a young guy because he didn't get to hear me play or anything, which is probably a good thing. But um, it was lovely because the next time I met Lenny, which is like winding forward you know to sort of 1986 87 uh was he came to see a show of ours when we played Wembley Arena and uh oh, that was wow. just awesome wow. that, that that I could say to him thank you so much and yeah you know one of the reasons that I'm here is because you were such a gentleman you know how, I hate to you... add that anybody that turns up to my house gets told to fuck off because it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's private especially any Isle of Wight especially any Isle of Wight singing milkman <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot of call for it, Gary. You know, Mark, how did you end up being a jazzer at such an early age, really? I mean, if you end up playing kind of like you were part of that jazz funk movement, but you were more jazz than funk, really, weren't you, at that stage in your life? It's certainly, that that was the thing for me. Yeah. My route through it, Gary, was, was really, you know, I was sort of drumming. I got my first drum kit. Mum and Dad got me when I was nine. And I was so into Cream then because Ginger Baker was this phenomenal, right. this phenomenal drummer. And of course, he's a jazzer. And there was Jack Bruce was in the band. And because I saw when, when you played that Jack Bruce tribute, and uh, obviously, I mean, I've always been in awe of your playing generally. But but this was a whole side you've never put out. You had that Jack Bruce thing just down, inside out, upside down, and it was amazing. Oh well, that's that's very kind of you, guy. Yeah. yeah, I did go. I don't know if you can see on the back of the, the on the wall there. I've got this old. Yeah, uh, the EB. You got the EB three. Yeah, yeah. There it is. This old one, which uh, I I went and got this uh, especially for that gig because you know being a massive fan and J Jack's yeah. family were very sweet and said, did I want to come and play a couple of songs and and um, so I thought, well, I I want to do it like Jack would have done it, you know. 
and um, so playing this bass and and being on stage and you know getting to play with Ginger Baker, albeit briefly, uh, was uh, you know for me a dream come true. Uh, so yeah, I worked with Ginger. It was uh... <laughs> yeah, it's an experience, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's great. That's that's definitely the way to put it. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, but it, it's okay because you know he's Ginger Baker and all yeah. of that great stuff. So getting back to what you were talking about, Gary, that's that's where I was coming from. You know, as a kid, and then of course I, uh, you know, because the drums thing, and then I, I got to see uh, Buddy Rich was on uh, Parkinson show, uh, and I sort of saw that for the first time, and it was um, just blew me away that there was this this sort of level of of dexterity on the instrument and stuff, and and as a kid there are no sort of limits. Uh, you know, we didn't have the the luxury of YouTube. Um, or, or any of that where you it was easy to get this stuff. You would just, you happen to stumble upon it either on TV or, or you know, or if John Peel was playing something and you happen to sort of listen in on That's that. Right. And, and you'd only hear it the once. So, wait, hang on, now what are we up to? We're, we're, are we up to you meeting the, the, your, your, the brothers and, and yeah, thinking but- about... Absolutely, like Boone and Phil. Um, you know, Phil. Phil was a fantastic drummer here on the island, and um, you know he was quite a name. Well, the, the, one of the benefits of 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 growing up as an aspiring young musician on an island is that you can kind of your 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 boundaries are quite small because there's this small circle of musicians that play. So it, it's you know the i don't know if if people realize how competitive musicians are particularly in the you know when they're starting out and it's always this thing to be you know i think i'm better than him i want to be better than him i, I want to be yeah, yeah. i just want to be the best uh, so you, you could always have, you found you found the bunch, but the idea that everyone would i guess everyone was fusion heads right in such a small place yeah well it, it, the, you know, so into fusion yeah, it, it, but it, it, they were the guys. But that's why we hung out together. I mean, I right. knew plenty of musicians who weren't into right, right, fusion, right, 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 and right. that I would be playing with as well. But it just so happened that those were the guys, so we we hung out together, and it it was it was just um, it was a lovely thing, and we stayed sort of great friends until we all moved to London, and then you know got something going. Yeah, but two there's never in the history of music has two drummers met up and gone, let's form a band. You know, I mean, you, 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 you were <laughs> well, both that ended well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, all, it, it, well, it, yeah. It, it ended well. You know, I mean, I, you don't want to step into the Gary Glitter two drummers thing, really. You know, with uh, but, but, hang on, your mate was a drummer as well, so one of you had to give, right? Yeah, well, the, the, and do you know what swung it was the fact that I I, I had my drums nicked um, on a sort of failed attempt at greatness in a, with a band in Austria. Um, oh, yeah, when no, I was, so. Now, that that's a little thing that I've seen that, uh, only a sentence about. I'm intrigued about this. What what was the band? Yeah, well, or, you know, or do, or do you, you not want to go there? Well, no, no. As you said earlier, Gary, you know, I I um I was working in Macari's music shop because, uh, you know, Mike. Yeah, this up, is who... sickening. That this is this is why you learned the bass. This is quite sickening to me. No, it, this did, is Mark, just how you, it was. Mark, by the way, before I say any more, did you know that Guy is a bass player? <laughs> well, I I heard he was a hey, bass owner because you know I, because my first my first my dad bought me my first bass from Macari's. Oh wow! Did so, he really? I mean, yeah, but yeah, but you, so, you, you would have been 
that would have been 19, that was 1975. You wouldn't be there then, would you? No, I, I wasn't there then. I was there sort of 78. Yeah, you could have sold my dad. No, but let's just invent the myth that you sold my dad my first base. <laughs> That's let's it. go so. with that. <laughs> the, um, but the, 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 one of the sad, uh, you know, one of the many, many sad uh, outcomes of COVID is that, that Macari's has finally shut down after all these years. Oh, it sort no. of went into liquidation last year. So that, that was really sort of sad to see somebody tweeted me and, and uh, I was very sorry to see that yeah. go. But um, yeah, so I, I was working in the music shop. They didn't sell drums, but I was able to get to see a lot of the traveling guys that were coming in doing the shows and things through the West End. And so obviously, you know, lunch times and, and things like that in the afternoons, you get these gigging bass players that come in and they'd say, you know, uh, let me see that fender on the wall or let me do, try this or something. And, um, and you know, a couple of them were slapping the bass. Now I, I was really into Stan Clark. So I was thinking, ah, oh, this yeah, is, yeah, that's the sound. That's the thing that I like, you know? Yeah. And so it was just a, a simple thing of then, you know, as soon as they'd gone, I was sort of say, look, you know, don't waste our time, mate. Off you go. They had no attention to mind. But I'd take the bass in the back and sit down and just start slapping it around. Go, you know, and just within a couple of months, there were, you know, a, a, an Austrian guy came into the shop, said, did I fancy, you know, and we were talking and he was talking about Chick Career and he played this little thing on the piano. And I just said, this is great. He said, I've come to London looking for musicians. And I said, well, I'm a drummer. Um, you know, and he said, oh, we're looking for a drummer, you know, so do you want to join the band? And I went with a guy called Bill Leesgang, who's a, a, a really good guitarist, and he was working in the other branch of Macari's. So we both left Macari's, went to Austria in the back of the van, and um, uh, went to join this band. That lasted about three three or four months we were living out there right in a really harsh winter it was freezing cold just dreadful and it, it ended up with me losing my drums uh, my vinyl collection and every clothes oh, no. every bit of clothes i stood up in so i i just managed to get a ticket back to london uh came home sort of empty-handed just a classic musicians struggling musicians yeah, story yeah. You know, with the help of all my mates, you know, once again, you know, Phil and Boone. And um, then I got to meet Mike Lindup and uh, and there we go. And they, they would give me clothes and uh, and, and I was crashing on, uh, you know, friends' floors and stuff. Uh, so it was, you know, this wasn't sort of a rags to riches thing. But that, Gary, you see, is why when we got together and we met Mike and Mike said, you know, there's a rehearsal room at the Guildhall School of Music. Let's go up there and jam. They got plenty of instruments. So I was borrowing an old Gibson uh, EBO, oh, uh, okay. which was the sort of the semi-acoustic. Semi hollow, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is where, Guy, I got that thing about you always using really, really light gauge strings because they were yeah, all no, short scale. I can't believe how light yours are. I can't yeah, believe yeah, it's oh, 30, I 50, 17. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he does it. I'm always looking for excuses why you're but, so but, much better than me. But no, your, no, no, your, no. Your style, Mark, must have come out of the fact you're a drummer because it's so percussive. What you're doing is almost what you were doing on a, on a set yeah, of well, it's, it's It's very much high, well, it's hi-hat technique, isn't it? Especially the, yeah, it, the two-handed slap thing. Uh, absolutely. I've never quite mastered. Right. Um, yeah. it's, it's very kind of you to say that, Gary. Um, um, you know, for me, it was quite easy because the, the whole thing, as you were saying, Guy, is very much the 16th thing. So, yeah. you know, everything I do, it's two hands. So it's, it's much more akin to playing congas or bongos. And then you just translate that to the instrument. And you, you know, you're going... And it's that whole, that, that 16th vibe that's going through, which at the time worked good for what we were doing musically, you know, and, and uh, it certainly seemed to fit with the whole, 
jazz fusion that we were hearing coming over from the States. So, it, you know, it was a good bit of bad fortune, if you like. It was something good that came out of the fact that I'd, I'd lost the, the drums. So, um, so Stanley yeah, Clark was your man, was he? Stan Clark was the guy. And, and it was, but also, Gary, it was the relationship that he had with... Um, with, with Lenny on drums and, and yeah. Chick Corea. And, and I think that the great lesson for me, uh, you know, as because, you know, I am, I'm known as being a bass player, but I've, I've never sort of said I'm a bass player. I've always thought of myself as, as a musician. <laughs> as shit. Yeah, but, but as, a, as a, just an all-round musician, because I'm just in awe of, you know, John yeah. McLaughlin and, uh, you know, these guys, uh, you know, and, and our good friend Gary Husband, whose name comes up yeah. again, you know, is just such a phenomenal musician. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's extraordinary to see him play the, you know, the way when he goes from, well, there was that famous thing of when he was a kid on Nationwide or something, isn't it? Going from piano to drums. And, and, and you know, I, I saw that guy, um, it was yeah. on a, I think it was an, an, uh, a Yorkshire TV programme sure, called right. Anything You Can Do that used to be on about 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon or something like that, certainly down here, you know, in, in on BBC South. And I can just remember getting in from school and, you know, switching on the TV. And th it was anything you can do, here's a chance to be the oh, best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, this kid was like, there was just this kid who, who sort of had a shaved head and specs and was sitting on a piano and he was just all over it. And then the bastard had the temerity to get off the piano, go to a kit of drums, beat well, seven bells. swung round. It just, was even just, worse. Just seven bells out, got around the, and then jumped back on the piano. And I'm, I think, you know, I stood there with my jaw on the floor. I'd, I'd have been about 14 years of age thinking, you wow. swine, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and Jeremy Stacey is the only other musician I know, who, drummer who plays keyboards at the same time, doesn't he? I mean, it, oh, does he? I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, so I'm he a, plays for, he, with, yeah. with King Crimson. Well, he does that yeah. with King Crimson, in fact, yeah. and, and, which is where there's another link. Well, you see, I, I, you. I can deliver milk and play bass at the same time. That's about the... <laughs> that's about... But, you know, but oh, listen, come, no, hang on. No, mate, you can play the bass to love games and sing it at the same time, which is... That well, is, that, that, but another reason is because, because nobody else would do it in the band. <laughs> you know, it was just a... Uh, you know, we we all started out. The idea of singing to any of us was wasn't something that was on the cards. It well, was this just, is an interesting. I know you're way too cool. I, I I can really see that thing with that kind of. It was you're just too cool, weren't you, to sing? But, but what made you guys? <laughs> true. You were instrumental jazz funkers, serious mus musicians. Yeah. I don't want to say musos. You may have all ended up as session players, never in a pop band that was going to sell out multiple nights at Wembley Arena. And so you're doing that jazz thing, but then there's also down the road, there's Brit funk starting. There's the whole sort of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there is Gary. And, 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 you know, and then there's the new, then there's a sort of um, new romantic, which is sort of post-punk well, disco was, going on over the other side. And this was, this is where you guys were coming in because you know, that there was, there was definitely a cross pollination, you know, that if you look back to the, the, the early music of Spandau and, um, you know, which because we're talking sort of 82, 83, uh, even yeah. earlier, 81, 82. And, um, uh, you know, cut a, long, cut a long story short right. and et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of this cross-pollination, but only the, where you guys were nailing it, which didn't occur to us, was that you kind of had an image thing going on. And, and that for us was just like, now that's a good idea. 
but you know we were kind of too late into it so we were just stood there our very first um promo shots that, that were taken for the first record i was wearing a shirt that my mama bought for me when i was at, on my 18th birthday and it was you know you, you always used to have your favorite shirt and stuff <laughs> and it was and you know because of course you had to make all this stuff go that was a shirt i saved for best so when, when we <laughs> had a, that's my album sleeve shirt Mom. Yeah, it was. It was well, the first haircut you know? 100, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, yeah. Favourite, favourite no, I think my, no, my point was, when did you or who suddenly said to you, why don't you start to sing and make pop records? It, it was, it was, it was the first, the first, our first producer, Andy Soika, um, who, he was the guy that had come along and heard us sort of rehearsing. And we, we were rehearsing in a studio, which very kindly paid for by Robin Scott, um, because Phil, From uh, M. yeah, M. Uh, that's uh, right. Uh, oh yes, that's yeah. That's exactly it. And, and the, conne the, conne the connection here was is that John Gould, who, who became our first manager, um, he was working at MCA Records, uh, doing uh, you know press or promotion or something, and um, he was the older brother of Phil and Boone, and he that th they M needed a a drummer to go on top of the pots. And uh, John said, you know, look, my brother plays drums and, and Robin said, oh, he'll be fine. You know, let's get him in. So that Phil suddenly from, you know, being my best mate and this, that and the other, Bastard was on top of the pops. And uh, it was like, oh, wow, it's this easy. This is what happens is that one minute you're starving, eating ready break with hot water, you know, in a in a squat in Walthamstow. Next thing, your mate's on top of the pops and that's how it's done. Anyway, Robin very kindly sort of paid for a couple of days rehearsal. And we were we were in the studios, rehearsal rooms. In the next room to us was um, Light of the World, uh, which was Bluey, of course, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and, and the guys from Beggar & Co. Who yes, we exactly. Up, who played on our record, Chant There you go. And, and all of these guys were, were in the next room to us. So, and it was just bizarre because, you know, we, we was just stood jamming in this room. And the door suddenly opened, and in came Bluey and all the guys, and Tubbs, the bass player, and you know, all the horn players, and they're going, Man, what's going on? And it's uh, <laughs> you know, well, that's how it seemed to me. None of them spoke with an American accent, no, by the way, in, but in, uh, <laughs> in my mind's yeah. eye, that's how it went, you know. <laughs> and um, it's lovely because you know, you as the years go by, you, you become friends with all of these guys, and you meet, you know, you, you meet them all, you hang out with them, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to, to working with Bluey at some point in the future. So, um, so, so hang on, Robin said you should sing. No, Robin saying? didn't. But our first producer, Andy Soika, he he oh, came down to this rehearsal because we kind of used this time. That was the whole point of having this rehearsal room is that we get somebody in. And John Gould, once again, knew this guy uh, who who had this uh, a band called Atmosphere and they had a record. They had a hit called Dancing in Outer Space, which was on oh. Andy's label. Um, all ears music, I think it was all ears, something like that. They were working out of Harlesden in North London, and uh, Andy was was a very go ahead guy for the time, and he had sort of had his finger on the pulse of this this whole sort of Brit funk thing that was coming through, and and the funk mafia, the DJs that were playing yeah. this stuff. So Andy came in, heard, you know, we played sort of five instrumentals, and. It, you know, he didn't really like four of them. He just liked one, which was the riff to a song called Love Me to Love. It's Love Me in Love, that's right, I'm, yeah. Uh, well, he's, he's... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because this, we're skipping over because by now you've already had Dominic Miller in the band. Yeah, Don, well, Don was, Don was Mike's best mate at, yeah. um, at the Guildhall School of Music. And Dom, you know, Mike said, oh, you know, I've got this guy. Because Boone wasn't, it, there was sort of me hanging out with Mike, and uh, me hanging out with Phil. Mike was there. I don't, I'm not sure Boone had even moved to London by this time. But um, uh, anyway, Dom was Mike's best mate at the, the Guildhall. And we, he sort of came down. We did about two Monday nights rehearsals, Tuesday nights or whenever it was that uh, in the room and then the third time he didn't show up and then you know because yeah, like he's a proper musician that, this is the one topic because I've took Dom's a, a dear old friend of mine and I've talked yeah. with him in fact and so I've had to play your bass parts because when you played on his when you played on his album so oh uh, that's I, right I, yeah I had to, well, I had to get a bloody a... five string out but funny uh, but the joke I used to have about the talk was of course Mike Lindup was in the band and, uh, and my joke was, I said, this is the most muso tour I've ever done. And you know you're in trouble when the Level 42 song is the easy one in the set. <laughs> <laughs> you know, recording that album with Dom um, was, was lovely, Guy, because we did it, we did the whole thing in a couple of days, just a couple of afternoons. And it was lovely um, working with uh, Ian Thomas was was playing oh, drums. Oh yeah, Yanto. Yanto and, and he's yeah. such a fantastic drummer. Yeah, and he's so I, you know, it just made the whole thing really easy for me. And it was that I kept thinking of Jimmy Johnson, who's another uh, sort of hero bass player of mine. Oh uh, yeah, played yeah, with yeah, Alan yeah, Holdsworth and stuff. And by yeah. the way, um, as you, what you you are appearing on uh, today for the first time, we were the number one music podcast on Apple. Oh, so, fantastic, guys. Yeah, mate. I'd say, say I think having a number one podcast is the middle-aged version of having a number one single. It's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It's lovely. Yeah, well, well done, you know, well deserved. I got a call actually from Tarquin uh, the right. other day. And, uh, you know, he said that because that, he's involved with this somehow. Isn't yeah, he is, that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, Tarquin looks after uh, Stu Copeland. And, that's right, um, yeah. And, and I did a I did a thing uh, with Stuart Gizmodrome. Yeah, Gizmodrome. I mean, that is the most yeah. fucking bonkers supergroup I've ever heard of. You know, it, it was lovely because we we recorded the the album in the studios owned by the the the, the keyboard player from PFM. And uh, I remember it, them. That's an old Italian prog band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And funnily enough, um, uh, Mark, uh, what's his name on Six Music, was, was just happened to be rapping about PFM the other night and going on about them, you know, sort of what an important band they were. So it was, it was just great to be in this studio. And it really was a sort of a, a great old early 70s studio. It was just walls of amps. And uh, and Leslie cabinets and organs and all these kind of old keyboards. Lava lamps. 
<laughs> but, but very nearly, there was lots of fluffy carpet everywhere. No, but listen, uh, listen, yeah, listeners, if you've not carpet. heard this, get your head around. Mark King and Stuart Copeland is the rhythm section. I mean, oh, <laughs> yeah. you could go yeah, to with, war with that, Adrian Ballou. And Adrian yeah, Ballou. and Adrian <laughs> Ballou on guitar was nuts, you know. Was and and Vittorio old, Cosmo was is this this the coolest Italian guy you know as always i mean you know that i'm talking to you working musicians now and you know how much we rely um you know we're kind of gobby and, and get in the place but you always rely on on really really shit up players uh in the studio around you who, who mm -hmm. kind of but just just glue the whole thing together you come up with some crazy idea you know adrian Ballou is just barking there's just stuff <laughs> yes. pinging off the walls and and vittorio just sort of managed to just pull it all together so that was a very very nice um yeah, I was say, not a lot of chords did you get some prog rock award mark yeah, I did actually, Gary. Yeah, and and um, I did. I, I I just I got a prog rock award, and um, it's in the flat in London. But I haven't been to the flat in London for over a year, so uh, it, it's probably been burgled. Since Gary and I have been in this um, the Nick Mason's band, Source for the Secrets, and we've suddenly found ourselves. It's quite kind of because when I work with Pink Floyd, they're sort of above, like you know, your peers are sort of ABBA, um, yeah, and yeah. and but whereas and obviously you know. Gary and I are used to very different worlds. And we've suddenly found ourselves in this world of prog, which is fantastic. And, and now seeing how there's this whole overspill of, of like, you, you know, there's so many connections with level 42 into this, oh, into well, this prog yeah, world. It's funny. But, it? Well, it's so, all about, it, it's all about sort of playing and, and just sort of playing really for the love of playing. That What I love about prog is that nobody's, you know, that when you come out of this, the, when you come out of the idea of actually trying to compete with a place in the charts, and, uh, you know, that we sort of, we fell into that, that cycle about sort of 1985 to 1987, uh, you know, of, of having to come up with the goods to have a hit record. When that's gone, it's just a lovely thing. You can revert back to, you know, to, to, to the true thing, which is that you just like playing. And, uh, and, and, you know, playing is playing, you know, as Miles Davis said, there's two kinds of music. There's good music and bad music, you know, and uh, it, it all works for me. Because obviously what the kind of music you were making in the 80s, um, the regular music press, the sort of NME and Melody Maker sounds, you know, they, they never really ever wrote, wrote about funk, jazz funk, soul, disco. They hated it. But they did, reason, yeah. It was to them, I think it was seen as sort of working class aspirational music and therefore not as politically sound as, say, reggae was. How did the press deal with this, these, these jazz? No, we, we, we were always incredibly unhip as far as the popular press was going i suppose about the the, the hippest we'd have been gary would have been um when our very first record that we talked about earlier on love meeting love that andy soiker had sort of picked up for us um was made uh, john pill made it one of his top 10 records of 1980 and that's wow. that's about the last that's time brilliant. you can't i mean that, that's great because you can't argue with that that's brilliant no <laughs> he, he did it and there it is it, it's it's done and dusted you know we were sort of seen as really this sort of the antithesis of what punk was about and even at the time uh, you know i remember going back then i couldn't get my head around punk at all as an older man with the blinkers off because it, uh, it doesn't matter anymore i just like listening to music i realized how great some of the the punk bands were and how yeah. important they were but they were the guys that really spoke to the the music press and and the you know the the popular media at the time and that was something that they they couldn't get their heads around 
what we were doing because they probably couldn't get their heads around the notes that were coming out, you know. But, you know, and so well, what's interesting, have... the only band who did actually manage to get away with that, who, uh, and I always found it quite extraordinary at the times because it's like, you know, the, the two bass players who were really affecting me, which was you and Norman, was Ian Jury and the Blockheads. I mean, you yeah. cannot ha get a more muso jazz funk band than that. No, and yet uh, they were completely because of Ian. The, the blockheads. The blockheads yeah. was a fantastic thing, you know. Chaz Janko yeah. did well, that, did yeah. did marvelous that things. That was punk meets jazz. Yeah, punk, yeah. It? It but was, they completely exactly. got away with it. it was, they, you know, if anyone else tried that. <laughs> and do you know too? There was, you know, also I love from from the punk thing was like Susie and the Banshees. I thought were just an incredible band, and you know, and when John McGeek was in and playing oh, guitar yeah. with them. Play, yeah. It was just incredible guitar parts in there. And yeah. I was straight away making a connection between what John was doing and what John McLaughlin had been doing. Absolutely. Because there was yeah. all this amazing arpeggiated stuff that, you know, yeah, harmonically was really, really sophisticated. And uh, was, uh, you Given know, that your, your sort of level of uh, the musos, if you like, probably not under the nicest name, but... No, could you, could you work on that, Gary, please? The, 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 the quality of music <laughs> I'll carry that cross. Within your band, was everybody in the group happy with the sort of commercial way you were going? And because you were writing pop songs that were incredible pop songs. The, yeah, I, well, do you know, probably not not towards the end. You know that the that I, I think that Phil, you know, felt that we were going in a direction that he didn't want to go in. Unfortunately, it was being very successful, and that, you know, that for me was everything I'd seen to have been working awards was that I don't see what's going wrong here, mate, because the band is being more and more successful. Unfortunately, the, the workload that was put on us was quite incredible. And, you know, when I look back and realise how Phil and Boone have both sort of risen to the task of, all right, look, we're, we're coming up with these songs, we need lyrics. You, you guys, you guys write lyrics, you know, write them. And when you go to the studio and you work the way that we used to work, which was basically you make it up right there and then, you come in with the loosest of ideas. And, you know, when album time came around, you'd say, well, what you got? And, you know, I'd sort of pull out some ideas, you know, Mike would uh, play some stuff and um, and we'd just sort of match it all together. And then it was like, well, let's top line it. So we'd la -de da the whole thing. And then, great, right, boom, write some words for this. Phil, write some words for this, man. And that is, is incredible pressure. And, and it was all being done like words were getting delivered to you on mic and stuff. If you look at your discography, I feel like I spent most of the 80s with my feet up because <laughs> it's just an amazing amount of very prolific. That's right, a lot of hits, a lot of hits. And you worked with uh, the two guys from Earth, Wind and Fire as well. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that that was sort of eighty three, Gary. That that was for us. That was that was a sort of a, a kind of um, respectability we, that we got from them. That that we we sort of weren't Is seeing. Larry Dunn. And, Larry yeah, Dunn. Larry Dunn and, and Verdine Verdeen. White. Yeah, and right. um, you know Verdine's fantastic bass player. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Larry Dunn was a marvelous, uh, you know, fantastic keyboard player and arranger. And Larry uh, also produced an album for Lenny White. So all of this sort of this this cross pollination of you know Lenny was the guy I went to visit in 1976, um, you know it, it's an incredibly small world when you you sort of start getting in that cycle of things. But working with Earthman and Fire and working in their studio, the, the complex in Los Angeles, and being just in this vibe where um, you know George Massenberg had a, a, a 
a workroom there. So he was coming in with these flying faders and sort of showing us oh, wow. how this this was working. And this was all sort of technology that was just, you know, on the cusp. And um, George Duke could walk in with Lewis Johnson. Wow. And because they're, wow. they're, they're doing something <laughs> exactly, you know, getting to shake wow. their hands and stuff. And, wow. uh, you know, it's heady stuff when you're, when you're 23, 24 years old, uh, you know, and you, you're in the you're in the sunshine, you know, and it, the whole thing's real. And you're with Earth, Wind and Fire, you know. Because you picked up uh, Wally Badaroo really early on. Well, yeah, because that's you? right. Wally Badaroo yeah. played with Robert Palmer and came out of that yeah, whole well, NASA I, with Robert, Compass Point, I, I remember so. living out at Compass Point. Yeah, that's right. And Because yeah, Wally, was, Wally was one of the Compass Point All-Stars. That's and, right, yeah. And, and Wally, of course, was the he also played in M. So it was the oh, uh, the Robin right. Scott connection that that's how we that that Phil got to meet Wally. Phil said, you know, look, I've got this 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 sort of fun band with my mates. Come along and have a listen. So Wally, from the very first record, Love Me to Love, Wally's been involved with the band. Um, you know, and as we sort of worked through to 84, 85, 86, and we were having some sort of sizable hits internationally um you know wally wally just always been the fifth member of the band he just never worked live with us that was all it was your ian stewart <laughs> yeah he was the, he was the main <laughs> man he, he was yeah. yeah the thing about uh your sound is even though you were using american producers you know the guys murph wind and fire is there was such a britishness and englishness about about your vocal well, you know, Gary, this this is what they wanted, though. The, 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 you see, this was the, the payoff for them because they, they'd been touring. They were on tour in 1982, you know, probably doing their last big tour. That, this is when they had the drum set going up on stage and going upside down and everyone was walking in and out of these opening, uh, you know, pyramids and the, the whole Egyptian thing. Massive shows. They were playing these arenas, you know, all around the world. And it just happened to be that when they were in Germany, they, they heard from Polydor, they said, oh, well, you know, we had this new band, or Deutsche Grammophone, of course, it was as the Polydor in Germany was then. And um, so they heard it, and it was Larry and, and Verdine, you know, got in touch and said, would you guys be interested in, you know, we'd love to produce a, a, a record with you. Do, do, are you up for that? We did. And, of course, there was this thing of why they were interested in us is because they they kept talking about this Euro thing, this European sound you got. And we, of course, the, the attraction for us was, oh, fantastic, we can actually go and get the sound yeah, like the real thing now, you know. So we kind of sat in the studio looking at each other going, well, how'd you do it then? You know, you, sh you tell us. And they were going, well, no, you show us how you do the thing, you know. But also, because the other funny thing for, for us, Mark, because of you know, because the 80s was the decade of the bass, right? It was it was it was the golden age of the bass. Yeah, the time, it, it was. Yeah. And 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 when talking about this British sound, I was because for some reason this struck me earlier that uh, you know because all all the gear we were using, everything we were using was British. I mean, you and I both you played JD basses and then yeah. Status basses as I yeah. did, and we all played Trace Elliott amps, and there was none of this slavishness to Fender or anything. Everything everything we were doing was British. Yeah, wrote the sound strings. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, my yeah. elite, space center elite. I've just yeah. grabbed that bass, actually, Guy. Hang on a sec. Oh, come on. <laughs> this, is, this is the one. This, this, is. Is. Yes. This, this was the JD that, um, the, the very first one. I love this. All the buckle rash and the crap Can you plug it, it in? just worn out. And, and I got oh, this in 19... Give us a slap. Give us a slap. Can you, put, can you plug it in, Oh, you can't hear...
Yeah, this place I got with the first advance we got from Polydor, 1980. Um, my share of it was 500 quid. We got five grand, which we had to buy a band's worth of equipment from. Yeah, which in and, those days. <laughs> and, and a van, and a van. So the I had 500 quid, and, and walking up Shaftesbury Avenue, I went into Sounds. And uh, I've been looking around, and I was I was thinking about a wild bass or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Course, but yeah. I just saw this, and, and it had been on at the, the guitar show in London, uh, the, the sort of music show that February. And, um, you know, they, they wanted 700 quid for it. But I just loved it because, one, it looked a bit like an Alembic. Looks like an Alembic, exactly. Well, I always thought, like, I thought it was when I first saw you playing it. I well, like, I think an Alembic. Bastard. I think Alembic thought it was too, because then they, they <laughs> a few years later, they came and they, they sort of made a couple of, uh, well, a few bases for me, actually. But th this one is lovely. It's like s serial number 0003SA. Mark, you've just bought that bass. Do you remember the first song that you would have slapped out on that with Level 42? What was the first thing you came up with? That You went, wow, that's me. That's nobody else but Mark King. Well, it would have been Love Games. We all wanted to be that guy. That is the guy we wanted to be. That's what he wanted to do. And there's a bit of video has surfaced on, on YouTube, which is of someone just showing you around backstage at the Pink Floyd rehearsals in this aircraft hangar in Toronto in 1987. You can't see the stage, but you can, see, but you can hear me and Gary Wallace playing Love Games oh, on really, stage yeah? at the Pink Floyd <laughs> rehearsal. Oh, yeah. thank you, guy. That's, well, that's <laughs> nice to know, man. You know, that's really lovely to hear. The bass that I borrowed before that was this Gibson EBO, which you know had the fine strings on it. But this is a long scale. You, did you try? Did you slap that? <laughs> did you slap it? Yeah, EBO? I did. I did, wow. and it worked. It worked <laughs> fine. You know, it was it was okay. Um, but that's how I ended up with these really with these really thin strings because they didn't make 30, 50, 70, and 90 as sets, and um, and particularly not in long scale. The reason they were that thin because they were short scale. So. That's where rotor sound were fantastic because right, right. back to this British equipment stuff. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that those guys were, uh, you know, I just got in touch with them and said, could you put together some sets of long scale of these for me? And they went, yeah, you know, and they did. And, and that's it. And I'm using them to this day, of course. You obviously became the bass player of choice. Uh, you and probably, you know, Pino and Guy, you know, the, you, you three were, were, were always being asked to do sessions. I mean, you'd go and you did the Midjour album, did, yeah. Was that was it? Did they want you to be Mark King slapping the bass, or were you then having to accommodate for their style and finding out stuff about you? Well, it's, it's a very good point, Gary, because back then, sort of in context, I think they probably wanted me to to play to do the Mark King slapping and noodling as much as I could within it. You know that that I know Midge was very happy for that to happen and. Um, and, and funnily enough, we go back to uh, Chaz Jankel and the Blockheads, mm. and I went and and did. He was producing an album for um, Alexi Sale. You know that? Didn't you kill my brother oh. and all oh, that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah I went yeah. and played a couple of tracks on that thing. Um, That's almost Steve, a singing milkman, isn't it? I mean, Steve, like <laughs> <laughs> Gold top. My um, Steve Lillywhite told my, my mate. I'm sort of friends with uh, Matt Everett, who's a Six Music News yeah. guy. And uh, Matt was, you know, that the uh, we just sort of celebrated Bowie's passing. And he said, oh, Steve Lillywhite was just raving about, you know, when you came in and played on. And I, I, I've got no recollection of playing on a Bowie album. But everyone what? said, oh, no, that's definitely you. And Steve Lillywhite said it was definitely me. But, you know, other than the fact that, that you know, back then, of course, 
you know, because it was Bowie, it didn't mean he'd be in the studio when the stuff was being right, laid right. down. So it's quite possible that I would have been at the townhouse or wherever and, and just gone into the room next door and just jammed along. You know, I did with Nick Kershaw, um, you know, all, all of these sort of guys. Do you know what track he played on for Bowie? I don't know. I, I, I haven't got a, I've got no memory of doing it whatsoever. But, you know, if I hear it, it even sounds like The funny like thing is, if people listening will be going, my God, how can that be possible? But I completely understand. I, yeah, I you understand, yeah? yeah? I totally understand, yeah. You know, the, and, and uh, there were things like when, when I did do Nick Kershaw's album, that, that, which is how I met Julian Mendelssohn, who then came to engineer oh, yeah. um, a lot of our successful yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and he would have been at Miravale with this, Gary, when, when you sort of dropped in for Ju dinner. Julian, Julian worked for us with Trevor Horn, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, because he was part of that whole yeah. psalm thing. And they, they had mafia, these, yeah. you know, there was just this, Trevor had this great sort of series of three or four engineers and sound guys that, that he always worked with, that, yeah, with all these projects. And, and, yeah. uh, but, you know, when I went in to do Nick's thing, that the I was sort of, I was laying seven bells out of whatever it was that Nick wanted me to do. And the door sort of came open and it was his missus. And she said, do you think you could turn the bass down? Because I'm watching... <laughs> I'm watching Coronation Street or something. We're making uh, a hit record yeah. in here. In the other room, yeah. So, you know, uh, what are you going to do? What are you I gonna played do? with you. I played with you on stage in 87 at Wembley. Yeah, that, that would have been one you, of the Prince's you, Trust things. You played one of my songs, Through the Barricades. Me and Tony yes. got up and did that. And Eric Clapson played guitar. Yeah. Phil Collins on drums. Yeah. And actually, I didn't. I remember doing the rehearsal in the afternoon. And I think, I, I can't remember... Uh, Mark Brzezicki might have been playing drums in the rehearsal. He would have been, for sure, yeah. Two days before. Yeah. And then on the night, we do, I'm doing Through the Barricades. It's all acoustic at the beginning. And then in the middle eight, the drums come in. These drums came in. I went, what was that? And I turn around and it's Phil Collins who yeah, sat Phil's, in. Phil's banging uh, and, and around. You, and, and um, in fact, I was watching it just the other day. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I couldn't. I'd forgotten that we'd, we'd played together on that show. It's, well, uh, you, you've just reminded me, actually. That that was the thing, Gary. There, there were such sort of um, lovely events, those. That, that, so you there see, was that's, just... that's where you could have gone, Mark. No, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. And at the end of that show, Ringo and George Harrison got up and we all did, uh, they did. a little help from my friend. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, it was great. And, and you know, my, my, famous, my famous quote, <laughs> I think George had been speaking to Nick Kershaw's wife because he came over to me and said, could you turn the bass down, please? And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, which I had to do. But I, I, this was sort of, I had this whole line of Trace Elliott forward tens under the drum riser, and it probably was horrendously loud, but uh, there it is. Yeah, and not very bassy. That was the thing, down. wasn't it? That was the thing. It was, everything was about punch. Yeah, it was. Punch. Well, that, really that, that's why I, was, I sort of used the the ten inch speakers guy because it's um, you yeah. know the, the the whole sort of eight an eighteen inch was just you wouldn't go there with slap bass. You know, fifteen inch you were pushing your luck because they really well, you, you've got to be standing a hundred yards away to hear it. Yeah, you have. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, maybe right. that's maybe that's why in soul music and funk music, it, it, because the bass guitar and the guitar and the keyboards are all occupying the same area. Yeah. You've either got you've either got falsetto guys or you've got the guys down here. Yeah, and big left-hand keyboard parts. Uh, and, you know. Well, certainly, you know that there there yeah. isn't that there are, there are very few level forty-two songs that don't have a synth bass actually right. um, fulfilling the proper low frequencies. If right. I'm fanning doing about doing the job, yeah, yeah, that's right, <laughs> doing your job, guy. <laughs> I mean, how do guitarists cope with what you do? I mean, you've had some great guitarists play playing with you over the years, but but. 
do guitarists ever feel, you know, hang on, I think, am I the guitarist or are you the guitarist? Because well, if you're Dominic Miller, you just don't show up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dom just, Dom didn't show up at all. Um, but this is where Boone, Boone Gould was fantastic because that he, you know, was like, okay, you know, then what room's left here? Because, you know, that working with all the guys, you, you have to, it, you know, obviously if I've been writing a, you know, a lick like the Love Games riff or, or something else or 43, something like that. It's all quite busy stuff. Um, and so it's like you you either try and crash chords through it or you sit there and you pick you pick your moments and you pick your notes, you know, and that's what Boone was so brilliant at doing. And then, of course, that, that becomes the sound, Gary. And, and, and so from then on, it's all right. This is the template. This is kind of how it goes if you want to work. And we also did a lot of unison stuff too. So, uh, you know, if it's Fingerstar yeah. um, riffs, then it'll be Fingerstar bass and guitar unisoning the same things, you know? <laughs> There's so much we've missed out. There's just, hang on, I'm trying to... <laughs> I mean, your first big tour was supporting the police, right? It was, 1981, now, yeah. Did you actually become friendly with Stu? I mean, did you guys hang out? Yeah, well, Stu, I, you know, I, I, we, we, we had five shows, which was, you know, where Stu would come back and sneer at us, um, you know, which he's really good at doing. And, uh, <laughs> but only the way that Stuart can. Because he'd just sort of wander in and stick his head through the door and go, are you having fun, guys? And then just leave. <laughs> and, and it was sort of all very, oh, my God. That, that was... A, yeah, that was we had Stuart on the show. He's a great actor, very theatrical. He's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was where we first became mates. And then um, I got a call from him. Uh, the very first Children in Need that, that was on Wogan's show, um, that they, they wanted a, a, you know, that they said a super group. So they asked Stuart Copeland to do something. And Stu called me up and said, Mark, do you want to do this thing on Wogan tonight? It's... Uh, you know, I've got this song I've written, and this was really Stuart's um, uh, what do you call it, sort of alter ego, which was uh, Clark Kent. Clark Kent, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, and Mark Brzezicki played drums on that, and uh, Stu was playing guitar, and he said, uh, We need another guitar, Mark, you know. So I gave uh, Nick Kershaw a call, and he came and did it, and then it was augmented. The, the, the sort of the fifth member of the band was Rowan Atkinson on tambourine. Uh, and that was it. And it was like... Any good? The, Any good? <laughs> do, do you know what? He was surprisingly good and he took it incredibly <laughs> seriously. And as, as it turned out that Rowan's a big prog fan. So he was very much into, oh. you know, into time signatures and all kinds of things. So On he was taking it very seriously. There was no Mr. Bean with the he whole was thing. Doing, he was doing 6.15 on the tambourine. <laughs> he was. He, he was all over it, you know. It, it, was, it was great. Bring us up to date. You're, are you at Level 42 still in existence or is well, it just you? No, no, no. Level 42 are very much in existence. You know, my, my good buddy, Mike Lindup, um, who I haven't seen since last March, um, you know, we were all set. The the very day before lockdown came, we were in rehearsals for a show with the BBC Concert Orchestra at the Palladium in London. Um, you know, we, st we we tour every two years, Gary, and, and last year would have been our 40th anniversary, and we, we had a whole 24 shows in the UK and another sort of 15 or so in Europe afterwards. Um, so we still tour. We do festivals all the time. Uh, obviously, the like I said, that we 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 the day before lockdown came in, we'd been in rehearsals, and then I just got a text from the BBC saying, uh, you know, one of the orchestras has tested positive for COVID. Um, everything's off, and uh, and that was that. And then that was the start of 
this whole thing. I came home with my wife and my daughter, and we've been on the Isle of Wight ever since, um, you know, and I've just sort of seen things dry up. I'm, I'm ver very angry at how, uh, you know, musicians uh, and our sector of the industry has been yeah. kindly ignored really by by the government and by yeah. furlough schemes and this, that and the other, because we do seem to have fallen through the cracks. And and there's been no acknowledgement of the, the huge amounts of money that music and entertainment bring into the British economy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And well, then when we it should, all gets... I know, we should fish if we fished. Oh, yeah. so to... And when well, it all yeah. gets going, it's going to yeah. be even harder traveling across Europe, so. Yeah, no, all that's outrageous. Let's not, let's not even go there. No, let's not even go there because yeah. it is kind yeah. of depressing, but so, I, yeah. I am furious about it, you know, and when, yeah. when I learned just uh, two or three days ago that in fact the EU did offer, um, you that's know, right. visa-free visa yeah, travel just... for performers, and the UK yeah. turned it down yeah. because they it would mean that we'd have to reciprocate and let performers yeah. come into our country. Yeah. Yeah. And they've said, no, that's not going to happen, you know. Yeah. So took back mm. control. Anyway, change the subject. Yeah, change the, but uh, having said that, just one positive note, that, that that's, there seems to be such a big groundswell of opposition to that that I've got a feeling something might happen. Well, you know, f fingers yeah. crossed it does because yeah. it, it can't go on like that because, I, you know, I talk with... Um, I have a fantastic agent, Neil Warnock from UTA. Yes, of course. I've known Neil for years. You know, yes. the, like I said, everything got put on hold. We had a, a Australasian tour. We had 10 shows in Japan, three shows in Australia, one in New Zealand, one in Singapore, and that all got pulled. That was for last um, May. And, and and then it got moved to this year, and then it got moved again because, of course, nothing really is going to happen. And, you know, fingers crossed we can get back out in October of this year. But I'm, I'm kind of not holding my breath. You know, no, we've rebooked our tour three times. We're kind of hoping summer. To, have you, know. you managed to be creative in your studio during this time? N not at all, Gary. That's that's the really sort of scary thing is because the way that this that the whole sort of COVID thing has affected me um, is that I've it, it's um, it, it's in, been incredibly negative in terms of your confidence. And you, you, it's because it's like you're there and you work, you work, you work, you work. It's what I've done for 40 years. And I'm always looking towards the next shows, the next this, that, and the other. And that sort of, that gets me going. And then when it stops, it's like the switch being thrown off. You, mm. It really makes you feel um, like you're, you're now worthless. There's, there's, that was it, mate. That was your lot. And that's how it sort of personally has felt to me. I know it's not like that in reality. And mm. I keep having a chat with myself about it. But if, if you're asking... You know, if you want to know how I really feel about it, it's been very, very negative in terms of my um, sort of creative spark. Yeah, and I mean, there is a there is this three way race, isn't there, between obviously COVID, the vaccine, and certain rock stars not making it to ever be coming on stage again. You know, we've got to free the world to get Mick Jagger back on stage one more time. You know, yeah. I mean, I am yeah. fearful that uh, there's a lot of people won't come back after all of this. And that we're well, you know that that time time. You know, it's it's like if this was the year, if 2020 was the year that never was, um, the, the the reality is that actually we are all another year older. So it's it's all very well saying, OK, well, let's just write that one off and then we'll crack on again. But, you know, it's it's just another year gone. And, you know, it's like it's cool by me because I've had a fantastic 40 years in the business. I mean, really, really, it owes me. It doesn't owe me a thing. But I really do feel for so many great young musicians 
and young bands that really yeah. were having their time. You know, if I think of idols, that they'd just really broken through and then bosh, all gone, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Nadine Shah, another friend of mine, uh, she, she had a fantastic album out last year. And it just like, you can't tour it, you can't do anything with it. And, yeah, and yeah. that's your time. That time's gone. It's not as yeah. if you can just put it on, uh, you know, and say, right, let's start again then. No, it's gone, we, mate, because that's old news. It's been a, it's been fantastic uh, spending some time. Really, it's been really brilliant. Lovely talking to you guys too. I, I, tons of respect for both of you. You know that the I know what it's like working in this business, and uh, you know you're both legends at what you do and stuff. Um, so thank you. Thank it's you. been a pleasure chatting to you. Ah, what can you say, Mark? What well, a what a lovely, incredible bundle of energy. Oh, he was a beautiful man, you know. Sometimes I've, I didn't really know, I've not really known Mark. I've never really got to know him and uh, just met him that odd occasion. But uh, yeah, so enthusiastic. And, and I, um, But I hope that works for our listeners because that wasn't our usual, the, the chronological thing didn't really happen. We seem to be jumping a bit, around. Bit but it was, but it's like, but it's, hey, it's just, you know, it was a fun chat, right? That's which is how we you know, thought. You know, you know what it was? It was it was kind of podcast fusion, really, wasn't it? It was. It was it That's was exactly fusion. what it was. That's confusion exactly it and it's about time <laughs> anyway um thank you for listening to the show and we should be back next week you'll get us on all uh of those regular podcast channels and want to say as well thank you for getting thank us to you. number one in the charts yes this thank week. you for making us number one wow number one podcast. Think, and yeah having a number one podcast i think is the middle age equivalent of having a number one single <laughs> anyway see you next week good night from me yeah it's good night from him 